book of Romans, chapter 3. Our focus this morning is verses 7 and 8. Romans 3, verses 7 and 8. But I want us to read verses 1 through 8. Romans 3, verses 1 through 8. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to grab one uh, from the seats in front of you. And uh, in those Bibles, this passage can be found on page 940. Beginning in Romans 3, verse 1. Here's what we read. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. Last year, in our study of Romans, we came to Romans 1, verses 21 through 23, and there we saw in those three verses the deplorable condition of the natural human heart. Everyone by nature knows that God exists. Everyone by nature refuses to honor Him as God and refuses to give Him the gratitude that He is due. That was the message of Romans 1, 21-23. And Paul mentions four terrible afflictions that have come upon every member of the human race because we by nature live in rebellion against God. Do you remember what the first affliction is that Paul names as a consequence of our rebellious living as a human race? In verse 21 of chapter 1, we learn that man has become futile in his thinking. That the, the, the first result of living with hearts that rebel against God, that do not want to honor God, that do not want to give thanks to God, the, the first result of living that way is that it affects our brains and makes us futile thinkers. You, you know what it means to think, but, but what do you think it means to be futile thinkers? Futile thinking is thinking that accomplishes no lasting Good. It is pointless thinking. It is vain thinking. By God's grace, you and I have the ability to think. Not, not everything in God's creation has this gift. right? This, this podium, it, it can't think. But people and animals and people to a higher level 
have this God-given gift, this ability to think. And it's a great gift. But our sinful hearts are inclined to take the knowledge that our brains are able to receive and to do damage to it. Our sinful hearts have a tendency to twist and to distort our knowledge so that it can only further the purpose of rebelling against God. Facts are good things. Facts are truth. But facts at the disposal of fallen human beings can be used for the most wicked purposes. The problem is not knowledge. The problem is not the facts themselves. The problem is us. You see, church, we are not moved mainly by what's up here, but by what's in here. And our corrupted hearts, okay, I'm talking about before we're born again, our corrupted hearts as natural people will take what's up here and use it for the most wicked things in the world. Church, we are not. The human race is not fair and balanced in our reasoning. We're just not. Our hearts have an agenda. And when we are apart from Christ, or when we are acting as one apart from Christ, that agenda is to suppress the truth about God and honor anyone and anything but Him. And that affects how we interpret things. That affects the way we reason. Our our hearts like to practice selected reasoning where we allow our minds to see some things but block out other things. How often I've sat in the homes of people who are far away from Christ and I've heard them say the most unreasonable things. And as I've tried to reason with them about God and about the Gospel and about the Christian life, you find that they cannot and they will not assent to what you are saying. What you are saying may be rational. What you are saying may be logical. But the spiritual warpedness of their hearts will not allow them to see. The things that the human race can justify with their minds is amazing. How many respectable men participated in the Holocaust and were able to justify in their minds what they were doing as they exterminated millions of Jews? How many today have found ways to justify the murder of unborn children? And dear friends, how often... Do you and I find ways to justify our sins in our own minds? We rationalize our sin. Yes, I know God says this is wrong, but I can find a way up here to make this seem right. What does the Bible say about our minds before we come to Christ? Romans 8, 7. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. 
Philippians 3.19, speaking of unbelievers, Paul says, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame, and their minds are set on earthly things. Colossians 1.21 says that before someone is saved, he or she is alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And Titus 1.15 says of unbelievers that both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Friends, this is the world we live in. We live in a world of madmen. We live in a world gone insane. Our minds do not function the way they were meant to function. Back in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, when all was right in the world, Adam and Eve could reason well. They could see all things perfectly, but no longer. Sin has affected our minds. And our fallen hearts will use what's up here to justify all kinds of wickedness against God and others. Well, here in Romans 3, we see an example of futile thinking. Paul is answering objections that he expects people to have to what he's been teaching about the sinfulness of both Jew and Gentile and how both Jew and Gentile are under the wrath of God. But the objections that Paul is answering in these verses are based on a silly, wicked kind of logic. The objections come from our heart with an agenda. An agenda to rationalize sin. An agenda to make it okay for me to do these things that I want to do. We saw an example of this wicked, silly kind of logic last week in verses 5 and 6. Look at verse 5 again and see it. Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And Paul says that he is speaking in a human way. That is, he, he doesn't want us to think that he really means this. <laughs> you see, by, by the way, I'm just speaking the way sinful people speak. I'm speaking in a human way. I'm not spe- I, I don't really believe this. <laughs> Do you hear the logic of the objection? If we sin and we act unrighteously, and then God shows his perfect righteousness when he judges us, well, doesn't that make God unrighteous? Isn't that self-serving? Doesn't that mean that God is getting glory by judging us for our sin? And the problem with this logic is that it assumes that it's wrong for God to get glory by judging sinners. And Paul blows this logic out of the water by pointing out in verse 6 that if this kind of silly reasoning were true, God could not judge the world. There would be no justice at all. If it is wrong, if it is self-serving for a judge to judge righteously, and all a judge can do morally is judge unrighteously, we've lost all justice in the world. 
So in this case, the, the silly, wicked logic is illogical. If this person was being objective, if this person was being fair and balanced, they would understand that this kind of thinking makes absolutely no sense. Of course God is going to be glorified when He judges sinners. That does not make it wrong for Him to judge sinners. But what would make somebody even give a silly objection like this? Why would anyone argue that it's wrong for a judge to judge well? The motive here is a desire to find a way to justify sin. The people making this kind of objection want it to be okay for them to indulge themselves in the pleasures of this world without having to be held accountable. And this wicked agenda of their heart shows up even more in this morning's verses, verses 7 and 8. Look at verse 7. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? So in verse 3, the people are unfaithful and God shows His faithfulness by judging them. In verse 5, the people are unrighteous and God shows His righteousness by judging them. In verse 7, this person is a liar and God shows His truthfulness by judging them. The idea is that God is shown to be glorious in judgment by condemning people who deserve it. Now look at verse 8. And why not do evil that good may come? Paul, don't you want us to live for God's glory? Don't you want our lives to bring forth good? Well, if God is going to get glory when He judges us, if His goodness is going to be seen when He condemns sinners, then maybe the best way for me to live to the glory of God is to live sinfully. Let's do evil that good may come. Let's tell lies so God's truthfulness will be seen. Let's be unrighteous so that God's righteousness can be seen. Let's be unfaithful so that God's faithfulness can be made all the more clear on the last day when He judges us for our sin. Let us live in sin for the glory of God. Do you not agree that that is silly, wicked logic? And some people are accusing Paul and his partners in ministry of teaching this very thing. He is being accused of teaching this. And so we have those last words in verse 8. Do you see it? Their condemnation is just. And that word there is very ambiguous. Is he talking about the people who believe that we should do evil for the glory of God? Is it their condemnation that's just? Or is he talking about the people that are accusing him of teaching this? Is he saying that their condemnation is just? Commentaries are split. Grammatically, it could be either one. And theologically, both are true. Both of those who believe, let's embrace evil for the glory of God, and those who blaspheme and slander those who preach the true gospel are taught in the Scriptures to be under the condemnation of God. All right. Are you with me? I know these aren't the easiest verses in the world. Are you with me? Do you understand what we've said? The doctrine that I want to bring to us from these verses 
is the foolishness of rationalizing sin. There will be times this week when you will face a temptation and almost immediately in your mind, almost immediately your mind will begin supplying reasons to you why right now in this situation it's okay for you to sin. The temptation will come and immediately your mind will begin coming up with reasons why this is okay. I know how this works in my life. My mind reasons. It's been a hard day. Maybe you haven't been feeling real well. Tomorrow, tomorrow you can get back to walking the straight and narrow. Tomorrow you can start anew. But right now, it's okay not to fulfill that obligation. Right now, it's okay to not, not you know, help your wife when she needs it. It's okay to be short with your children. Just Yeah, it's not normally the way you would want to live, but I mean, look, you've had a hard day. Does that make it all right for now? By the way, is that sound reasoning? Absolutely not. It's silly, wicked logic, but we experience it every day. Or at least I do. Maybe you don't. I don't know. But I do. I experience this all the time. My mind trying to rationalize sin. My mind trying to justify it. I want us to be prepared. I want us to be equipped to fight back when that wicked, silly logic comes into our minds. What I want from the Word of God this morning is is for our minds to be renewed so that as soon as those sin-justifying thoughts pop into our minds, better, more accurate, sin-defeating thoughts will appear and will triumph and lead us to do the right thing for the glory of God. This sermon is about our fight with sin. I want to give you two things to remember. Two things to remember when you realize that you're beginning to rationalize sin. Number one, the judgment of God is no small thing. The judgment of God is no small thing. Look at verse 8. And why not do evil that good may come? These people are arguing that we should do evil today so that on the last day when we are condemned for our evil, good will come forth to the glory of God. That must be a pretty low view of judgment if you think it's worth it to embrace sin today and face judgment later. You must assume that the judgment of God is a very small thing to make a statement like this. This person is basically saying that it's worthwhile to embrace evil today and then to suffer the punishment that is to come. And yet, church, I would dare say that if anyone looks honestly at the teaching of the Bible about God's judgment, both in this life and in the life to come, they would not speak so flippantly about the judgment of God. Anyone who says, I'm going to live like I want to today and I'll just have hell to pay, no big deal, does not understand what it means when they say they have hell to pay. One glimpse and they would never say a thing like that again. Do you know anybody like this? Do you have any friends or family members who think this way? 
They're so in love with their sin and living their own life their own way that they're just not afraid of the judgment to come. They just think in their minds, well, if that's the price I've got to pay, I'll pay it. Belittling the judgment of God is a dangerous game. What do we know from the Bible about the judgment of God that will be poured out against those who live in sin? Let me just remind us of a few of the most basic sobering truths. One is that hell is a real place. I think a lot of people today justify living in sin in their own mind by thinking all that talk about hell is just meant to scare people. It's surely not a real place. But according to the Bible, hell is a real place. In Matthew 25, Jesus promises that He will return. And He says that when He returns, He will gather all the nations to Himself and there will be a great separation. That is, some will be declared sheep and they will be cast to His right. Others will be declared goats and they will be set upon His left. And then Jesus says in Matthew 25, 34, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared before the foundation of the world. And then Jesus says in verse 41, The king will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. In other words, just as surely as there is a place called heaven, there is a place called hell. You cannot deny the reality of hell without losing the reality of heaven. Indeed, if there is no real hell, then you are saying that the Scriptures lie. And if the Scriptures lie, what are we doing here? could be watching pre-Super Bowl coverage this morning. But if the Scriptures are trustworthy, then we must believe that hell is a real place. Second, we must affirm that hell is a place of terrible suffering. Hell is a place of terrible suffering. Listen to how Revelation 14, for example, describes the punishment of a sinner in hell. In Revelation 14, we're told that he will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and with sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Such a revealing passage. Among other things, it teaches us that hell is not a place where you're separated from God forever. We're told that hell is a place where people suffer in the presence of the Lamb. Jesus is there. Lord over hell, just as He is Lord over heaven. And in His presence, this terrible suffering goes on forever and ever. We view our sins as such small things. But God views them as they really are. 
Every sin we commit against God is a heinous offense of which the just punishment, the right punishment, is an eternity of terrible suffering. If you deny this, if you deny that any sin is worthy of an eternity in hell, it only reflects that your view of God is too small. Your view of God's holiness is too small. Your view of the obedience that God is worthy of is too small. Hell will be a place of terrible suffering. And not one person will be able to say, Christ, you are treating me unfairly. Not one. In the midst of the terror, you will know that you are getting what you deserve. You will curse your foolish heart and your foolish mind that back when you were alive on earth rationalized your sin, made you think little of the judgment of God all the times that your mind reasoned and said, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. I was reason after reason after reason why it's okay this one time for you to do this thing, for you to have that attitude, for you to say those words. Oh, how you will curse your foolish mind that ever thought that way. If only you had kept the Word of God before you at all times, you would have known the dangers of sin. As we've heard often, sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And ultimately, sin will cost you more than you want to pay. And thus those people that say, let us do evil that good may come have a very low view of the judgment of God and they are in for a terrible surprise. One other fact that we know to be true about hell is that it is eternal. We heard that in Revelation 14. Just another example, Mark 9. Jesus Himself refers to hell as the place of unquenchable fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. There will be no end in sight to the terrors of hell. Hell is a place of no hope. And those who go there will know full well just how awful sin really is. So dear friends, when you are tempted to rationalize sin, when you are tempted to be like these people in these verses using that silly, wicked logic to make you think that it's okay for you to do this, remember the judgment of God and do not belittle it. A holy fear of God can do great things for a Christian soul. But then second, the other thing I would ask you to remember is that the judgment of God will justly fall on those who make excuses for sin rather than repenting of sin. The judgment of God will justly fall on those who make excuses for sin rather than repenting of sin. We read that line, verse 8, their condemnation is just. And we're tempted to say, sure, for unbelievers... Their sins will bring on them the judgment of God. But but Justin, I'm a Christian. There's no judgment going to come to me. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Justin, all this talk about judgment, that doesn't apply to me. 
But dear friend, Paul rightly says in this verse that those who rationalize sin, those who justify sin, those who make excuses for sin will be justly condemned. Those who rationalize sin, trying to to call evil good, trying to make allowances for bad attitudes and wicked words and abominable actions, these are the ones who will be justly condemned. Which means, if you're here this morning and you're excusing your sin rather than fighting your sin, you have no good reason to believe that this condemnation is not yours. If the life we are living is a life of rationalizing sin rather than hating sin and repenting of sin, then this condemnation is yours. Saying I'm a Christian doesn't make you a Christian. (laughs) And it can also become a way of rationalizing sin. Have you ever heard anybody say, or have you ever thought, Jesus will forgive me, so I'll go ahead and do this. Jesus never promised to forgive anyone who indulges in sin. Jesus promised to save those who repent. Jesus promised to save those who hate sin, those who will make no allowances for sin, those whose hearts have been changed so they do not want sin anymore. It is for the penitent that Christ came. A Christian, by definition, is one who has seen the glory of Jesus and has fallen in love with the glory of Jesus and knows that every sin is opposed to the glory of Jesus and so the Christian hates sin for Christ's sake. So if you are living a life of excusing sin, making allowances for sin, justifying reasons why this sin can stay in your life, you are not living as a Christian. Every moment you are rationalizing sin, every moment you are making excuses for sin is a moment you have no grounds for assurance of salvation. If there's a spirit bearing witness to your heart that you are a child of God, even as you go knowingly into sin, I dare say it's not the Spirit of God giving you that assurance. And there are other spirits in this world. It is only when we are trusting Christ, following Christ, loving Christ, that we are safe and have real grounds for assurance. It is only when we are not making excuses for sin, but taking dead aim on sin to rid it from our lives that we are truly following Christ and have reason to believe we are His. There may be some here this morning and this passage has pegged you exactly. You've been calling yourself a Christian for years, but you've never really turned away from sin. You've always been able to find excuses and reasons, justifications for why it's okay to you, for you to, to, to speak this way and act this way, doing things that you know the Bible says is wrong. Maybe you've even allowed your supposed Christianity to become a support for your sinful life. You've used reasoning like, well, I'm a member of a church, so it's okay if I do this. I I made a decision when I was six, seven, or eight years old, therefore I'm a Christian. It's okay if I do this. Jesus is going to forgive me anyway. 
Dear friends, if you are using Jesus to justify your sin, do you really think He's going to treat you well on the day of judgment? You want to know how wicked the human heart is? The wicked human heart can take Christianity and use it as a reason for sin. Let's get very practical, coming to the end. Justin, I'm trusting Jesus the best I know how. But there are some sins in my life that time and again I make excuses for. There are some sins in my life that time and again I continue to indulge in. I always find some way to rationalize it. I always find some way to convince myself it's okay for me to do this again. What can I do? First, know that you are in a perilous position. 1 John 2 is not unclear. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. So every moment you live knowingly breaking the commandments of Christ is a moment in which the evidence is building against you to show that your faith is a farce and you are far away from Christ. Second, know that those who trust Christ have been set free from the bondage of sin. Do not convince yourself that you are helpless and that your sin has enslaved you and that there's nothing you can do. Don't be hypnotized by sin into thinking that because you've fallen a hundred times before to this sin, you can't conquer it now. If you are looking to Christ, you are no longer a slave to sin. You are a slave to Christ. And if you long to do His will, then you will be able to stand up to your temptation and you are able to say, I will not do that. I cannot do that for I've been bought with a price. I am not my own. It is for freedom that Christ has made us free. If you are looking to Christ, no temptation is too strong for you. You can beat any sin in your life, period. You can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. So don't lay down and play the wimp. Fight. Take aim, this is number three, take aim at that sin in prayer consistently until it's dead. If you see that you continue to make allowances for sin, you continue to rationalize it, you continue to justify it, then go to God in prayer and make it your daily prayer. God, I have a soft spot for this sin. My heart always finds a way to make excuses for it. Help me. And don't stop praying that prayer every day until the sin is dead. Pray that God will remind you of how this sin affects not only you, but those you love. Pray that God would remind you of Christ on the cross bearing the punishment for sin. Pray that God would remind you of hell and how you will have to bear that punishment if you do not repent. Pray that God would help you love Christ so much and become so fully His servant that this temptation would lose its hold on you. Number four, take advantage of the means of grace that God has given you. The best way to fight a sin-polluted mind that is seeking to rationalize sin is with the perfect, glorious logic of the Bible. Read the Word of God and instill the truths of the Word of God into your heart and into your mind so that you will be ready for combat. 
Folks, the moment of temptation is often like those moments that you see on TV shows where suddenly there's an angel on this shoulder and a, and a devil on this shoulder. You know what I'm talking about? And each one's trying to win the person over. Ooh, do this. Oh, no, you should do this, right? Well, in the moment of temptation, our fallen hearts, though they've been made new, still can come up with all kinds of wicked reasoning for why we should do this sin. You must combat that with the pure reasoning of the Bible. All the promises of God, all the warnings of God. Typically, in the moment of temptation, you're not going to be able to pull out a Bible and start finding verses. You need to already have that in your mind and in your heart. You need to have the Word of God hit so deeply inside of you that as soon as your mind brings up some wicked reason why this sin is okay, it cannot help but remember what you have put into your heart of why that will not work and why that is not true and why you must do what is right for the glory of God. So take the Word of God. Take prayer. Take Christian fellowship. Take witnessing. Take godly books and audio sermons. Use these things to watch over your heart, to keep your heart inclined towards Christ so that it will not be so keen towards this wicked reasoning. And then finally, number five, we're done, is to pursue the opposite virtue with all your heart. Pursue the opposite virtue with all your heart. We've been studying the mortification of sin on Wednesday nights. This is one important point of that book over and over again. Whatever that pet sin is in your life that your mind continues to rationalize, continues to justify, find its opposite virtue and pursue it like crazy. So if greed is your problem, if greed is where your heart always begins to make allowances, pursue generosity with all your heart. And as your generosity grows, your greed will die. Meditate on the generosity of God. Sing about the generosity shown to you in salvation. Every time you begin to have greedy thoughts and ideas, oh, I wish I had that, I want that, I need that, let you instead move towards generous actions and behaviors. Cut off that sin at the root by pursuing its opposite virtue. Friends, what is it for you? What is there in your life What sin is it in your life that is so precious to you that your mind constantly makes you think it's okay? Use a silly, wicked logic to make you think it's okay. What is that sin or sins? What is the opposite virtue? Pursue the opposite virtue with all your heart. Dear friends, if we look to Christ... He will bring us safely through this life to a day when we will no longer have any silly, wicked logic within us. There will be a day when our hearts and minds will be perfected, a day when we will see all things rightly, and on that day we will give all glory to our God and to His Son, Jesus Christ. But until that day comes, let us walk by faith in Jesus Christ and combat the wicked, silly logic of our sinful hearts. Amen? Let's pray.